you have something special. You have greatness in you. My name is Les Brown, and I'm encouraging you to read my book, You've Got to Be Hungry, The Greatness Within to Win. If you're ready to design a life that you love, a life that will outlive you, if you're ready to explore and to release the imprisoned splendor in you, as Elizabeth Browning would say, I'm encouraging you to listen to my very good friend, Amber Furman. She's the real deal. She will get the greatness out of you. She will inspire you to shoot for the moon because even if you miss, you'll land among the stars. My name is Les Brown. I'm Mrs. Mamie Brown's baby boy and Amber Furman's pride and joy. Welcome to the More Than Corporate Podcast. I'm Amber Furman, recovering perfectionist and serial accomplisher. If you're anything like I used to be, You've been living your life thinking that if you accomplish enough stuff, you'll finally find the success you've always wanted. But what if it's not about accomplishing more stuff? What if it's about accomplishing the right stuff? I believe you don't find success. You create it by intentionally designing the life you want and having the courage to get out of your comfort zone to live your design. I went from doing what I was supposed to do to doing what I love to do. And now I get to help others do the same. Keep listening as I chat with inspiring people who make it their mission to live their best life every day and learn how you too can live the life you've always wanted. Welcome back to another episode of the More Than Corporate podcast. I am so excited to have you guys here with me, and I cannot wait to dig in to this amazing guest that we have today, Mr. Les Brown. Les is one of the world's most renowned motivational speakers. He is highly sought after resource in business and professional circles for future 500 CEOs, small business owners, nonprofit and community leaders of all sectors of society looking to expand opportunity. For five decades, he has not only studied the science of achievement, he's mastered it by interviewing thousands of successful business leaders and collaborating with them in the boardroom, translating theory into bottom line results for his clients. He's committed to motivating and training today's generations to be achievers and leaders as he introduces new audiences every day to It's Not Over Until You Win, Up Thoughts for Down Times, and Fight for Your Dream. His most recent book, You've Got to Be Hungry, The Greatest Within to Win, is so fantastic, and I highly suggest you pick up a copy, as he would say, not now, but right now. I am so excited to have him here and I cannot wait to dig into this interview. Really quickly before you do, I wanna take just a second to talk to all of you serial accomplishers out there and you know who you are. Happiness is over the next accomplishment. I just need the wife, the car, the spouse, the career, and then I'll be happy. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it doesn't exist. You will not have the success you're looking for until you take the time to define it. And if you cannot answer the question, what does success mean to you? Then my Design Your Life Mastermind is for you. Spend 12 weeks with me and we will help you create a blueprint to the life that you've always wanted and show you how to execute it. Head over to designyourlife.successdevelopmentsolutions.com for more information. And without further ado, let's head in to this interview with Les. Les, how are you doing today? I'm great, and so are you. It's a pleasure to be able to spend some time with you. You have such a beautiful face, a beautiful spirit, 
smile and energy that I just love. And I'm excited about the questions you're going to ask. I'm waiting for you. Bring it all. Oh, I'm so excited with, with that from Les Brown. I don't, I don't know if I need anything else, man. Thank you so much. Um, as a side note, really quickly, we are live streaming this to the Facebook group. So if you want to ask any questions to Les, go ahead and let me know. I'll try to incorporate those in. I want to start, Les, by talking about this idea of being hungry. I think that anybody who's listened to you talk has heard these words, right? And we know, I mean, I certainly know what it feels like to be hungry for food, but what does it mean to be hungry? What does this mean? To be hungry is to me, to live a heart-centered life, to live a life that resonates with you, to, to live life from the, the spirit of why you are here. A job is what you get paid for. A calling is what you are made for. And people that are hungry, they find a way to win. They step out of line. They don't follow the crowd. Be ye not conformed to this world. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. They have a feeling at some point in time, they have an awakening, as Tennessee Williams said, there are moments in your life that you look in the mirror and you ask yourself the question to that person looking back, is this as good as it's going to get? Am I going to be any better than this? And it's an unsettling question. And so when you're hungry, you say no. When you're hungry, you believe as Lion King, uh, Simba, you're more than that which you have become. You know in your heart, you are more than that which you have become. And you're willing to do whatever it takes. You become a no matter what person. You become unstoppable and relentless in pursuit of discovering the truth of who you really are and that you have a, a disdain for living a misplaced life. Oh, so good. One of the things that you say, and I, I think it's in the very early part of your newest book is be hungry for a life that will outlive you. And I'm, I read that and there are, so I have a group of friends that we always call when we're reading a book and we're like, Hey, I just heard this. And I know that you need to hear it too. And I think I made four phone calls when I read that statement, be hungry for a life that will outlive you. You talk about your story so much and learning what that meant for you. When did you know that you were meant for more? I think it's a gradual process that looking at my mother, born in an abandoned building on a floor in a poor section of Miami, Florida called Liberty City. I'm here because, as you know, two women, one gave me life, uh, the other one gave me love. God took me out of my biological mother's womb and and placed me in the heart of my adopted mother. And she took my twin brother and I and five other kids in. And when I was in the fifth grade, I was labeled educable, <laughs> mentally retarded and put back from the fifth grade to the fourth grade and failed again in the eighth grade. But what I remember most about our mother, she was a person on a mission. She never had any children herself. And she wanted to do that. She wanted to raise children. She wanted to share her life with someone. And, and every day she got up 
there's a spirit of optimism. Although we had tough times, we were poor, but we didn't know it. You know, she worked on Miami Beach and she worked for these wealthy families and, and, and she cooked for them and we ate the food left over from the families that she cooked for. And she cleaned their homes. And I remember a defining moment when hunger for a different life happened to me when I was cleaning some spots off the floor for Miss Harris. And she said, Miss Harris, Mamie, go find this hat for me. That's in another room. On that day, hunger was birthed in me. And mama went and she went in the room. And then I heard Amber, I heard mama clapping her hands. And then she came out and said to Miss Harris, I'm sorry, but it's not in there. But while mama was in there, I asked her, I said, mama, why are you clapping your hands? And she said, don't you worry, you just continue to do what you're doing. And then Miss Harris said, well, go down and look in the room on the left. And sure enough, mama went down there and she got in the room and she started clapping her hands again. I said, mama, why are you clapping your hands? This time she's irritated. Do what I'm asking you to do, Leslie. Pay attention to cleaning up those stains in the kitchen. And at that time, Miss Harris walked over to me and she said, I can tell you why she's clapping her hands. And I looked up at her and I said, why? When I have colored people looking for something and I can't see them, I make them clap their hands to make sure they're not stealing. Amber, I dropped the washcloth, I stood up and I looked her in the eyes. And this time, black people were not allowed to look white people in the eyes. You will be brutalized by the police or put in jail. I looked her in the eyes and I said, my mother is not a thief. She would not steal from you or anybody. She loves you and she loves your children. My mother's a Christian, she is not a thief. And Ms. Harris was so startled, she just walked away. And I got back down on the floor and I started scrubbing the spots on the floor. And I said to myself, never again, never again. This will never happen again to my mother. When I become a man, I'm gonna work so that I can buy groceries for our family. We won't have to wait for someone to eat. And then we eat the leftovers. I, I'm gonna be able to buy clothes for us and we won't have to wait and get hand-me-down clothes. And, and nobody will ever make my mother clap her hands again. That was a hunger for a life outside of the racism, outside of a culture that was designed, a system to oppress and to keep us down. And there was a hunger in me that I'm going to find a way to break through, to break out, to live a larger life. And the love for my mother and the hunger in my heart for a better life was given birth. Uh, I read that in the book and just, I, I think I might've actually cried. Um, we are all trained to be so 
not, I don't want to say ashamed. That's not the right word, but we, we avoid the pain that we've suffered in our life. And we don't realize sometimes that that those experiences are what create who we are and where we get the fuel to, to keep moving and keep moving forward. You talk about your they past. Can bitter or they can make you better. You yes. Know, have a choice. Choose ye this day whom ye shall serve. The higher the lowest than you. Yes. You know, you said something, and, and I can't remember if it was your quote or if you were quoting somebody in the book, but you said your past may be done with, or you may be done with your past, but it's not done with you. And when I read that, I thought, man, it's so true. It dictates everything we do. Yeah. That's from the a movie called Magnolia, Magnolia with Tom Cruise. We might be through with our past, but our past is not through with us. That we all have had experiences that help shape who we are, that impact us. And most of us are unaware of it. Martin Seligman in the book called Learned Optimism, a 26-year most exhaustive study done on self-esteem. He said, between the ages of zero and five, he said, we develop permanent personality characteristics and, and behaviors and values and choices that follow us for most of our lives until we have some type of interruption. And I believe the work that you do, that it's an interruption, that life is built on interruptions, transformations, and decisions, basically all of us are the same. The decisions that we make are the things that separate us. And so when people listen to your program, how people live their lives is a result of the story they believe about themselves. So through your voice and the guests that you interview, you disrupt their self-explanatory style. Be not conformed to this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You renew their thinking. You allow them to look at their lives differently, distract, dispute. Through the execution of the conversations or the presentations and the workshops and your mastermind, when they are in that immersion, you dismantle their current belief system given to the youth, given to them by life. And at the end of the mastermind, and not in terms of the end of when it culminates, but I'm talking about when you have an event that at the end of that event and that interruption, you ignite what Mother Therese would say, a spirit in them that, that they become as a pencil in the hand of God. And as a result of coming out of that mastermind, they start writing a new chapter in their lives. <laughs> I love it. So this is a loaded question and I'm going to pre-frame up by saying I know that before I ask it because there's no easy answer to this and probably no short answer. But what do you think is the difference between the person who's able to outrun their past or transform their past and the person that is held prisoner by it? The difference is the interruption. If you don't have some kind of experience that allows you to see yourself differently. I look at my twin brother and I, we're five minutes apart, but we're different as day and night. And the difference is when he got out of school, he went to serve our country in Vietnam for 24 years. Uh, he, he 
he came out an honorable discharge. He was wounded in Vietnam. I, I took the path of self-development. I had an encounter with a person who, he, he had a personality very much like yours. I was in his class, Mr. Leroy Washington. And he said, young man, go to the board and work this problem out for me. And I said, sir, I can't do that. He said, why not? I said, I'm not one of his students. I'm just here to see MacArthur Stevens. He said, do what I'm asking you to do anyhow. And I said, I can't, sir. And the other students started laughing, saying, he's Leslie. He's got a twin brother, Wesley. Wesley's smart. He's DT. And he asked, what's DT? He's the dumb twin. And I said, I am, sir. And he came from behind his desk and he looked at me. He said, don't you ever say that again. Someone's opinion of you does not have to become your reality. Whoa. My mother said, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words can never hurt you. Words can hurt and very deeply. But when he said that, it, it, it jarred me. When he said that, he looked at me with the eyes of Goethe, who said, look at a man the way that he is. He only becomes worse, but look at him as if he were what he could be. Then he becomes what he should be. And on that day, that was a defining moment. On that day, when I left his class, his voice was in my head and in my heart and he ignited another part of me. I love it, I love it. And I wanna say on that, because I know that, that you, you mentioned this as well, it's not just other people's opinion, it's your own, right? I think there's a, a quote in your book, no matter what you think, you don't know enough about yourself to doubt your own abilities. And I kept thinking like, how many times do we tell ourselves we can't do it? And that, that may start to come from outside sources, but eventually we reinforce that. So when you talk about that interruption and the people that you spend your time with, being able to make sure that you have somebody that can say, hey, don't say that to yourself is just as important. We reinforce what has been instilled in us. There was a university that at the beginning of the year, they would go into this particular professor's class and he would give them a mathematical formula to solve. But before he gave it to them, he gave a lecture on how many people came in there who were very smart, very brilliant who failed for years. No one ever decoded this mathematical problem. But then one year, someone figured it out and everybody was shocked. And the reason they were shocked was because the person who figured it out was just an average Joe, just an average everyday person. So they conducted an investigation. They felt that he cheated. Somehow he got the information and he cheated. And they did this investigation and came back and the investigators said, no, there's no way he could have gotten access to the answer. And it took them several months trying to figure out what happened, how in the hell this guy, just an average, everyday guy didn't figure this out and people who were honest students made all A's, top of the class, PhDs, MBAs, how did he do it? 
And then finally, they figured it out. He wasn't in the room for the lecture. He would give the lecture. Nobody's ever figured this out and you're gonna to fail too. So don't be upset. Don't be brokenhearted. Don't, don't beat yourself up. There are many before you much more brilliant than you are, had more going for them that failed. You're gonna to fail too, but it's okay. I've seen people become very depressed and suicidal, but no, don't, don't worry. It's, it's not unusual. He wasn't wow. in the room. <laughs> wow, that's so powerful. And I, I love that that you shared that for all the people out there who, um, you know, we, we kind of get to, we get to consciously decide what we're going to listen to and what we're not going to listen to, but it has to be made. I believe, and you can disagree with me if you want, I'd love to actually know, um, that it has to be made in an instant because as soon as you reinforce it, I think you actually mentioned in your book that it's, it takes, is it 17 times that you have to hear something positive to outweigh something oh, negative? Yeah. But we're in, a we're in a different time now, Amber. We, we don't get to consciously decide now what we're gonna believe in. We got algorithms, if you look at Social Dilemma, have you seen that? I, okay, so I know that you're going to tell me I shouldn't be, but I have been like ignorantly avoiding watching this. Yes, you want to watch it. You need to know what's affecting our thinking. So we have things that affect this at a subliminal level that goes straight past the conscious mind to the subconscious mind. We have that kind of technology. You can't tell me, given what's going on right now with the QAnon, that some foreign countries not manipulating and disrupting the thinkings of Americans and, and, and what we're dealing with. We're talking about, on one hand, biological warfare, but on the other hand, corrupting the minds of people and not people not even know it. The, the part of some of the guys who created that technology, they've been duped by it. And yeah creating it, see? So there are things affecting us that we don't know. And the only way I believe that I've seen, and there are perhaps other ways that we can begin to step outside of the programming is what you are doing. That this, this show, what it does is it allows people to tune out from the madness, unplug from life and listen to things that's going to empower them. Things that will give them a larger vision of themselves beyond their mental conditioning. Things that will allow them to decrease the level of unconscious self-loathing and, and thoughts of self-sabotage that does not serve them and increase their sense of worthiness where they come to believe and to know that life is God's gift to us and how we live our lives is our gift to God. This program that you have here, it's about having a sense of purpose. A purpose-driven life is a powerful life. To realize that life is God's gift to us and how we live our lives is our gift to God. This program is designed to help to transform us to accommodate the disruptions because life is full of disruptions. You, you're talking to somebody Who's, who's dealing with fourth stage cancer. That was disruptive when, when they looked at me and said, Mr. Brown, you're dealing with fourth stage cancer. 
it's it's metastasized to seven areas of your body. And fortunately, I I had a very good oncologist who had an unusual sense of humor, Dr. <laughs> Alfred Golson. I said, and what else? He said, cancer's metastasized to seven areas of your body. Your PSA, which stands for prostate-specific antigen, is 2,700. He said, one to four is normal. I said, is there anything else? He said, yes. He said, Jen, you're ugly too. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh my God. Oh my God. I said, wait a minute, man. This is serious. He said, but you got this. I determined the diagnosis. And all I, I, I never say to my patients, you're terminally ill. What I say is that my knowledge, my abilities, and my skills have terminated. You and God determines the prognosis. Y'all have to figure this out from here. And so because of that interruption, because of our laughter, and most people in a fearful situation, they forget everything and run. My favorite book says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for thou art with me. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. I, I came away in that fearful situation doing what Zig Ziglar said, you face everything and you rise. You realize that faith not tested can't be trusted. This is only a test. This is not the end of the road for you right now. I was 29 years ago. I'm at Cancer Centers of America in Atlanta. And they said, whoa, 29 years, fourth stage cancer. I'm Dr. Taha from Pakistan, so I want you to talk to my father. Wow. Oh. So we are stronger than we give ourselves credit for being. And we have to work on ourselves. That life is hard, but we can do hard. If you do what is easy, surrender, give in. Your life will be hard, but if you do what is hard, your life will be easy. Yes, <laughs> I love that. So I want to talk to all of the former me's out there that were sitting in a classroom waiting for somebody to give them permission to be great, waiting for somebody to tell them that it was okay. And one of the stories that continues to inspire me over and over again, and I know you tell this story often, so you can make it as short or as entertaining as you'd like, but I would love to know how you got your start as a DJ. Well, I can't believe you're asking me that ever. <laughs> I told Mr. Washington, Mr. Washington, I want to buy my mother home. He asked me, how do you plan to do that? I said, I'd like to be a radio personality. He said, good. He said, you got to be hungry. I said, what do you mean by that? People that are hungry are willing to do the things today others won't do. In order to have the things tomorrow, others won't have. People that are hungry are relentless. People that are hungry believe, always strive to get on top in life because it's the bottom that's overcrowded. I said, Mr. Washington, I'm, I'm hungry. All my life I've been compared to my twin brother who's very smart and my sister who graduated with honors from the University 
of Miami. He said, here's my card. Go to WMBM radio station. Ask for Milton Butterball Smith. Tell him I sent you, one of my mentees. And so I went to the radio station and he said to me as I was leaving, don't forget, you got to be hungry. And so I said, hello, Mr. Butterball. How are you, sir? My name is Les Brown, sir. I like to be a disc jockey. He said, you have any journalism in your background? I said, no, sir, I don't. You have any experience in broadcasting? I said, no, sir, I don't. But let me audition for you, sir. Let me show you how good I am. He said, no, we don't have any job for you. I was devastated with rejection. I went back and I told Mr. Washington, I said, Mr. Washington, he said, no. He said, don't take it personally. Most people are so negative, they have to say no seven times before they say yes. He said, you got to be hungry. Go back again. I went back again. Hello, Mr. Butterball. How are you, sir? My name is Les Brown, sir. I like to be a disc jockey. He said, I know what your name is. Weren't you here yesterday? I said, yes, sir. He said, didn't I tell you no yesterday? I said, yes, sir. He said, then why did you come back today? I said, sir, I didn't know whether or not somebody was laid off or somebody was fired, sir. He said, no one was laid off or fired. Now, get on out of here. I came back the next day, talking loud, looking happy, like I was seeing him for the first time. I said, hello, Mr. Butterball, how are you? My name is Les Brown, sir. I like to be a disc jockey. He said, I know what your name is. Weren't you here the last two days? I said, yes, sir. Didn't I tell you no the last two days? I said, yes, sir. He said, why did you come back today? I said, sir, I don't know whether or not someone got sick or someone died, sir. He said, no one got sick or died. No one was laid off of fire. Now, don't you come back here again. I came back the next day, talking loud, looking happy, like I was singing for the first time. I said, hello, Mr. Butterball, how are you? He looked at me with rage. He said, go get me some coffee. I said, yes, sir. My favorite book says, the greatest among you will be your servant. I became the errand boy for the disc jockeys. I'd go get their lunch and their dinner. And I'd stand in the control room watching them working their hands on the control board, knowing my time will come. You. You have to put yourself in a position and have a mindset of, I expect to win. That's how people who are hungry are. And then on the weekend, when they would come out to the parking lot, they would be amazed. I'd clean their cars inside out and shine them. They'd say, hey, who did this? I said, I did, sir. How much you charge, young boy? Oh, nothing, sir. I just wanted to help out. I wanted to show them that I'm a go-to person, a resourceful person. If you want to make it in life, you've got to be willing to provide more service than you get paid for. They said, look here, here are my car keys. Dinah Ross and the Supremes are coming to town. The Four Tops and the Temptations. Pick them up and take them to the Fountain Blue Hotel on Miami Beach. I said, it'd be my pleasure, sir. I'd drive them all over Miami Beach and disjock his big long Cadillacs. Didn't have any driver's license, but I was driving like a handsaw. <laughs> then one day, it was a Saturday afternoon, a disc jockey by the name of Rockin' Roger was drinking while he was on the air. Rockin' Roger got so drunk he could not complete the show. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I was the only one there looking at him through the control room window. 
walking back and forth, young, ready, and hungry. Rock began to slur his words. And I was saying, drink, Rock, drink. I'd go and get him some more if he'd asked me to. Then pretty soon the phone rang. It was the general manager and I answered the phone. I said, hello? He said, young boy, this is Mr. Klein. I said, I know. He said, Rock can't finish his program. I said, I know. He said, would you call one of the other DJs to come in? I said, yes, sir. I hung the phone up. I said, now he must be think I'm crazy. I called my mom and my girlfriend, Cassandra. I said, y'all come out on the front porch and turn on the radio. I'm about to come on the air. I went in the control room and I got old Rock out of the way. And I got behind that turntable, that microphone. And Stevie Wonder, he was 12 years old at the time. He had a song called Fingertips. And I said, look out, this is me, LB Triple P. Les Brown, your platter playing papa. There were none before me and there will be none after me. Therefore, that makes me the one and only. Young and single and love to mingle, certified, bonafide, and indubitably qualified to bring you satisfaction and a whole lot of action. Look out, baby, I'm your love man. I was hungry. <laughs> <laughs> I love this story so much and I'll tell you why. The why? I, um, I have spent, what's up? Have you seen me give that speech in the Georgia Dome? I've seen the video, yes. And, and that's the first before, time I heard it. Yeah, but I was speaking before 80,000 people? Yeah. Okay, yes. yes yeah. Dome. Les Brown, speaking in the Georgia Dome. Tell your listeners to check Yes, it out. and we will put that in the show notes because it's so powerful. And it's one of the moments that I realized. And I say one of the moments because I think that there's this like, long trail of seeds that get planted before we finally realize that something needs to change in our life. And this was one of the seeds that I realized that I was spending my life like waiting for permission. I was such a good girl as a kid. Like my mom mm -hmm. kept telling me, she's like, I'm just waiting for you to come home and tell me you're pregnant. You're like 19. Like, I'm just waiting for you to come home and tell me you did something wrong. And I was so afraid of doing something wrong that I needed everybody to tell me what was right. Mm. And what led to that was I would just sit there and I'd be like, okay, somebody tell me what to do. And all these opportunities were laid out in front of me, but I'm like, but nobody told me I could do it. Mm. And then I, I listened to this and then multiple other things that happened. And granted, I'm making it sound like a short period. Obviously it was like 25 years, but no, I, I, all of these things that happened made me realize that this phrase, ask for forgiveness, not permission, is always said when you're about to do something bad. But what happens when you're about to do something that can change your life? Right. Yeah. We've been programmed to think small. Um, uh, intelligence has been memorized, they've been measured by ability to memorize. Uh, the educational system has been, for the most part, greatly influenced by corporations and we've been trained to get jobs, the journey of the broke. And we have to operate in the thinking of Henry David Thoreau, who said, do not go where the path may lead, go where there's no path and leave a trail. And that's who you are. And that's who the people who listen to you, that's who they are. What you talk about is common sense, but it's not common practice. And so in order, for us to get through this. 
if you ever wax the floor, you don't just put clean wax on top of old wax. You have to strip it. And part of what my work is and your work is, is to help people to strip away the mindset of the world, be ye not conformed to this world, to strip away that limited vision. You can't fit a big dream into a small vision to strip away those things that have been instilled to, in us that no longer serve us. Absolutely. And, and get into our greatness. Oh my gosh, I love it. Want to be great. Yes. I love it. I love it so much. So talking on this route of digging within yourself and getting out of your own way and being willing to step into your greatness, one of the hardest conversations to have with yourself is it's so easy to look out and say, okay, the world needs to change. This needs to change about the people that I'm around. And the hardest thing is to look in yourself. And there's something that you said in your book that I had to put it down and walk away for a minute and, and really reflect. And that was, if I surrounded myself with people like myself, would I become the next greatest version of myself? No, you will not. And I thought, man, so I read that in two different ways. I read it in surround yourself with people who can expand your perception, surround yourself with people who show you what's possible in the world that you didn't know was possible. But I also read that as having a real conversation, like, am I really showing up a hundred percent? If I was me and I was, my friends were surrounded by me and I was surrounded by only me, would I bring myself down or would I lift myself up? And as much as I would like to believe that I'd lift myself up, I think there's always that part inside of all of us that we're like, man, I could be doing better in these areas. And it's that question that allows you to change your life. But also knowing that we earn within two to $3,000 of our closest friends, that the bigger question you have to ask yourself is, what are my relationships doing to me? Sidney Portier said in his book, Man, the, the Measure of a Man, he said, when you go for a walk with someone, something happens without being spoken. He said, either they adjust to your pace or you adjust to their pace. Question is, whose pace have you adjusted to? Yeah, absolutely. Most people don't ask that question. When you stay in a relationship where you're dying together rather than living together, the question is, what kind of person are you becoming because of this relationship? What is it doing to you? What has it taken away from you? Have you swallowed your voice? Most women, they turn their power down when they get into a relationship with a man who's not growing. My oldest daughter she was dating this guy and I said, how, how are things going with you and Mark? She said, I had to leave him. I said, why? She said, he tried to take my power away. She said, the light that he uh, was attracted to, he spent most of his time trying to put it out. Whoa. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. There's, it's really interesting for me to have this conversation and hear this because I have historically in the past been somebody who 
I call myself a recovering people pleaser, right? Everybody around me has to be happy. Everybody has to love me. And there's been a couple of um, moments that have pushed me out of that. One of them is obviously this, reading this book and this conversation. There's also, um, I was listening to a Facebook live from a friend of mine and he said, not everybody is supposed to come on your journey with you. And I thought, man, not everybody's supposed to come on my journey. But the most powerful, and I think this person is actually listening to this live stream right now in my group. I listened to her speak at a conference. Her name is Taj Cannon. And she talked about gardening. And she said, if you leave, I think it was mint that she was talking about, but I'll plant in a garden. It will take over everything around it. Do you want to lose the mint? No, you don't necessarily want to lose it, but you have to move it to its own little pot where it gets the attention that you choose to give it when you choose to give it the attention so it doesn't take over every other plant in your garden. And I thought, man, like it doesn't have to be cutting them out of your life. It has to be intentionally deciding what power you give them over your circle. Another way to look at it, that life is an elevator. And the higher you go up, you have to stop and let some people off. You have to let go or be dragged because the, the toxic negative energy of that relationship will short circuit and compromise your power. I remember reading about John H. Johnson who built a $400 million empire with a $500 loan from his mother, Ebony Magazine. And a reporter asked him, why did you fire your best friend? And he said, I fired him because he told me that I couldn't do what I envisioned to do. He said, hell, I didn't believe I could do it. I didn't need anybody around me to tell me that I couldn't do it. Wow. I had to convince myself. And so when we look at ourselves, it's very important right now, mental resolve having a process, having a ritual. When I get up in the morning, I said, all things work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. I say, Lord, whatever I face today, together you and I can handle it. And then I write down seven things that I'm grateful for. And then I, I, I read the things that I wanna get out of the day. That's, that's the agenda for my life. Because if you don't have an agenda for your life, then you'll be a part of somebody else's agenda. And then I listen to a series of motivational messages. Why? Because whatever you listen to when you first get up in the morning, the first 20 minutes will affect the spirit of your day. And so now more than ever, we must have a ritual that allows us to build mental resolve because in this place of uncertainty, in this place where life has been snatched out from under us, in this place that's permeated with fear and a feeling of being powerless and hopeless of just breathing where you are, that we have to fortify our minds, listening to things that will build us from the inside out. Then the next thing is we have to learn something new. When the disciples were were disappointed because they couldn't catch some fish. 
the, the Jerusalem Slims and throw your net on the other side. <laughs> you know, you got to change up. Einstein said, the thinking that has brought me this far has created some problems that this thinking can't solve. So we're in a place that if you're not willing to learn, no one can help you. But if you're willing to learn, no one can stop you. And yes. Then, yeah, when I was fired from radio, I had to learn how to use my abilities, my talent, my desire to help people another way. I ran for the Ohio legislature and I was elected. I passed 14 bills my first term. I was a chairman of the Human Resource Committee and the Education Committee. And then my third term, I resigned because my mother, my adopted mother, she became ill and I promised her she would never go to a nursing home. And I went back to take care of her. And then I had to learn how to use my ability to communicate my passion to help people, use it another way. And I became a professional speaker. So life is about evolving. Life, it's about being versatile and flexible and asking yourself, how do I take that which is in me it's in me to help people. It's in me to inspire people. It's in me to make people laugh. I, I told my kids, I said, when I die, I, I want you to wait three days before you allow them to embalm me. And then come in the morgue and slip a microphone in my hand. <laughs> I don't sit up and say, you got to be hungry. And say, okay, give him the shot. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yes. Oh, I am. Um, I'm listening to this and thinking of my former self and all the people out there who think that because they've worked so hard to get to where they are, they can't change. And you've given so many examples of learn the lessons that you're supposed to learn, gain the skills that you're supposed to learn, go into every opportunity, wondering what you can learn, learning what you can, and then know that that's inside of you. And that when you walk away and do something different, that you're taking all of that with you and it's not wasted time. And this is one of the things that I love so much about your message, because so many people, and I used to be one of them, thinks that you've worked so hard to climb to this top ladder and you have to stay there. Radio Amber. I love radio. I worked hard. I, I did five jobs, only got paid for one. I was the program director, the music director. I did a talk show that they didn't pay me for. I, I did commercials. I, I did five different jobs. They just paid me to do the morning show. But I wanted to make myself indispensable and they fired me. Life is not fair. But here's what Marion White said. In life, when you don't have enough courage or insight to know that you've outgrown a situation and it's time to move on, life will move on you. I didn't have enough courage. I know how they feel to believe in myself, to bet on me. And, and so life moved on me and, and I had to recreate myself. I had to learn something new another way to use my superpower, had to figure it out. And we have all the tools we need. We're living in a golden age. 2007 Time Magazine said, the computer is the person of the year. Why? Because for the first time in the history of the planet that you can create 
a, a global business and, and communicate with people around the world. You, I, I'm speaking virtually around the world. I'm making more money around the world in my Mickey Mouse pajamas. <laughs> and when I was going from city to city, hotel to hotel, that this is a brand new place where we are. And so in adversity, what we want to do in this pandemic is make it work for us. Take the time and have a spirit of optimism and find out what's in here, what service can I provide with my superpower that will allow me to come out on top. There are three types of people that's gonna come out of this, millionaires, billionaires, and witnesses. And the people that listen to you on a regular basis, the people that are exploring self-awareness and discovering who they are, the people that are surrounding themselves with what I call OQP, only quality people, collaborative, achievement-driven, supportive relationships, they'll be in the first two categories, millionaires and billionaires. And the rest who don't listen to you, the rest will be witnesses. They'll be standing by and talking about how bad things are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm interested to know, you, I have conversations all the time with people about how I really wish somebody would have had these conversations with me when I was 17, feeling like I had to pick my life career path in college and decide what I wanted to be when I grew up at 17. And then I go to the other side of that coin and say, if somebody had said these things to me at 17, I wouldn't have been ready to hear them. And so my question for you is, do you think that there is a too early time to start telling kids that they have control over their future? At what point in time do we start to realize that we don't have to plan our entire lives at the age of 17? I think we should cultivate in our kids and I have some experience. These are my kids behind me and I have their pictures there to remind me that to live my life in such a way that when I die, I will not leave liabilities I will leave a legacy. And so we need to start early. They're speakers, they're authors. I want to be in a business that will allow me to make a difference that would be me. Something that was my calling. A calling is something that you love so much that you do it for nothing and you do it so well that people will pay you to do it. And so my children, they took it on too. They like making a difference too. We work together too. Has it been easy? No. I've fired them and they've fired me many times. <laughs> Part of keeping a good family is having a bad memory. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm still in that for my next family reunion. We don't use a bad memory. We just use a lot of alcohol, but bad memory is better for you. Absolutely. And this thing called life is difficult. Yeah, isn't it though? Oh my goodness, yes. Difficult and beautiful and amazing at the same time. Yes, and, and, and treasuring the moments before they become a memory, realizing moments, how important they are before they become a memory. I did not realize rubbing my mother's ankles that were swollen from arthritis and the stories that she told me that she was shaping my mind and that 
people recognize me for my ability to teach them how to tell their story and to make a difference in people's lives, to distract, dispute, and inspire, to create a significant emotional event and transform an audience or a stadium of people. I had no idea listening to her while my brothers and sisters were outside playing. And I'll say, Mama, would you tell me another story while I'm rubbing your ankles? Leslie, I've told you these stories hundreds of times. I said, I know, Mama, but I like them. Please, Mama. I'm a mama's boy. <laughs> and, so, and she would. And who'd have thought that I would receive the highest award from Toastmasters, their Golden Gavel Award, or be selected by Toastmasters in 92 with General Norman Schwarzkopf, Leah Coca, Paul Harvey, Robert Schuler, and myself, the top five speakers in the world. That's some good company. I mean, I, yeah, I'd say. Yeah, so I did not know. It was Steve Jobs. He said, the storyteller, and that's what you are, and that's what I am. He said, the storyteller is the most powerful person in the world. And so when you think about that, but you know, and and I'm not talking about in a context of any uh, political persuasion, but if you looked at the prosecutor, the first prosecutor and the defense and the first prosecutor told a story, his son had died. He told a story about his daughter who was with him when the insurrection took place. And she said, daddy, I don't wanna come back here anymore. And he broke down and started crying. Let me tell you, I was crying. You know, I got no, I was crying. I said, I know why you don't want to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and then the defense came out. It was all over the place. I said, listen, the ability to tell your story is powerful. In, in politics, it, it's about the story you tell about yourself and the story you tell about your opponent. The story your opponent tells about you and the story they tell about themselves. In business, it's the same thing. You are the storyteller about your business, about your service, about your expertise, about your products, about your invention. The story to investors and why they should invest in your idea. The person who's the most effective at doing that come away with the most money love it yeah you know we could talk for hours about all the amazing golden nuggets that you have to share um and unfortunately we don't have hours so um your book is absolutely amazing was just released last year there's some things that you talk about in that book that you've never talked about in any other book previously and i'm going to save those for the people that choose to go buy that book and i will tell you that they are amazing and that you learned so there's so many golden nuggets in this book alone and i had to pick my favorites so we will link in the show notes that book um where can people connect with you or your team if they want to learn about all the amazing ways that you can help improve their life? Well, first, I'm going to give them a gift. I'd like for them to go to hungrytospeak.com. 
hungrytospeak.com. And they'll see an interview with my youngest son, John Leslie, that I talk about when I was in the Georgia Dome beating him in a game called Connect Four. I encourage them to go to hungrytospeak.com. They'll see this video where I'm talking about strategies and techniques of how to become an effective presenter, to, a presenter because the ability to present is everything. everything. Um, Warren Buffett said, not being able to present is like being in a dark room with a woman and you wink. He said, but nothing will happen. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then I give them a set of CDs, and I want you to have these called Choosing Your Future. It's the best work I've ever done. I was going through an experience. I was bathing in the sink down the hall in the Penobscot building where I had my office. I was bathing in the sink and sleeping on the floor. But at the end of that six-week series, I received my first check for $1.2 million, my first check. Wow. So it's, it's, they will learn. All achievements happen first in the mind and then in the without. They will learn what Dr. Miles Monroe said, rob the cemetery of your dreams, rob the cemetery of your gifts, of your knowledge, of your inventions of your books, of your program. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So um, and we will put that in the show notes as well. I have one final question for you before we start to wrap yes. this up. And this is what I ask every single one of my guests, because I believe that we do not find success by chasing it. We design it by being intentional about what we want in our lives. And that, that all starts with deciding what success means to you. So I would love to ask you, for you personally, how do you just define success? I define success of living a life that will outlive you. I once said about me when I go, he aspired to inspire until he expired. The greatest among you will be your servant. My goal is to serve until I leave here. Super powerful. It's super powerful. As we start to wrap up, I would love to end this with a quick random round and put you on the spot for just a second. Are you okay with that? I'm very fine. Bring it on, my sister. All right. If you could have any profession other than what you're doing now, what do you think would be fun to attempt? I've never been asked that. Hmm. I would like to be able to bake a good sweet potato pie with stevia. My mother used to bake a sweet potato pie so good you couldn't eat it with your shoes on. <laughs> you had to take your shoes off so you could wiggle your toes. <laughs> so I, I love it. Yeah, I, don't, I can't cook, but I want to. I want to bake a sweet potato pie with stevia before I leave here because I'm overcoming diabetes. <laughs> yes, yeah, sweet potato pie with stevia. We'll figure that out for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out. Yeah. Um, if you could time travel, where would you go and why? If I could time travel, 
I would like to, to meet up with Paul Robeson who wrote, here I stand for I can do no other. And Nelson Mandela and Nat Turner and interview them and ask the question, how did you do it? And Frederick Douglass, those are four men that were powerful. How did you do it? Wow. How did you overcome the odds? Wow. Um, when it comes to consuming content, are you a reader or a listener? Do you need a hard copy book or do you like audiobooks? I love both. I read a minimum of 30 to 40 pages a day. I love audiobooks if the person has an engaging voice. I'm doing an audiobook, but I can't read it like I think. So my audiobook would be through in three weeks. So I have to talk it out. <laughs> it's the experience all by itself from what we've already done. And I put it with music. People will have a ball because you can't print my laughter. <laughs> you really can't. So I have to share with you that I put in my community page that I was going to be interviewing you and asked them if they had any questions that they would want to ask you. And one person just commented and said, Les could read the phone book and I would be captivated. So <laughs> when you um, when you do your audio book and you put your laughter, you could put it in the phone book and apparently you would captivate people. So thank you. There are people who love my voice. Thank you. <laughs> Um, what book, other than your amazing new book that everybody should have, have you gifted the most to people or would you recommend the most to people? I would recommend the book that I wrote the forward for by my mentor, Mike Williams. And it's called The Road to Your Best Stuff. And he wrote The Road to Your Best Stuff 2.0. So I encourage both those books, The Road to Your Best Stuff. He saw this Les Brown before I did. I, when he asked me to write the forward, he didn't, his, his daughter, Anika, who's my goddaughter, I broke down and started crying. And she said, why are you crying? I said, because I did not know that I was in here. She said, what are you talking about? I said, this person that you're now here, I didn't know. And he allowed me to go to a place in myself that I could not go by myself. Sometimes you have to believe in somebody's belief in you until your belief kicks in. I remember in the Georgia Dome, I was so frightened, Amber. I didn't think. I could do the speech. I thought I was speaking in a banquet room and they said, no, you're speaking to 80,000 people. And I panic and they had to come get me out of the bathroom. And, and he said to me, he looked at me, he said, Brownie, you're scared, aren't you? I said, yes, I've never spoken in a stadium before. Mike, I've never spoken to more than 500 people before. And I don't want to let these people down. Can we just give them their money back and let these other guys do it? He said, no. So they brought you here to close it out. He said, 
Make your mother proud. You can do it. And that's why I believe when I looked in his eyes, I knew I can do it. That you sometimes you have to believe in somebody's belief in you until your belief kicks in. When I walked to the back of the top of the steps and I looked back and he was looking at me, go, you got it. They gave me the microphone and Amber, I turned and I don't remember anything else. I don't remember the audience. I just, I just spoke from my heart. I've never seen this speech. People tell me about it. I've seen about five or 10 minutes of it and I see it as a viewer. But he spoke to me and it took me to another place inside myself. And I was able to do it. That's the value of words. Words. Just listen to this. I'll let you go, but follow me. Oh, I am yours for as long as you want. Listen to this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, healings, all these things, ideas, dreams, all these things, living a larger life will be added unto you. Thou shalt decree a thing that shall be established unto you. When shall the kingdom of God come? The kingdom of God cometh not by observation. They shall say, it's neither low there or low here. Behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And the kingdom is voice activated. It's voice activated. There are people who, when you speak, who are in a dark place, but when they hear Amber's voice, a light comes on. When they hear your voice, you ignite the kingdom of talents and dreams and abilities that have been lying dormant. It says, rise. When they hear your voice, you activate the greatness in them. They get out of their head and pursue their greatness. And when you're pursuing your greatness, you don't know what your limits are. And so you live like you don't have any. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, man. All right, I have one last question for you. <laughs> and it is the very last one of our random round. Coming up in here again, are you? Come on with it, yes. What is your pump-up song? What is that song that you listen to and you cannot have a bad day? Jerusalem. Have you heard it? I have not, but I will oh, because yes, by King, KG, Jerusalem by KG. It's I will track it down. Don't make me get up and dance for you, babe. Oh, I will pay for that. Um, yes. I have a Spotify playlist of all of my guest answers to that question that I share with my Facebook community. So I will track it down and it will go Everybody on there. Everybody listening to me know it except you. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, Everybody. I'm the only one. You're the only one, yes. But you've heard it. And you're I'm sure it. I have. Yes. 
Thank you so much, Les, for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing so many amazing insights, being so open and vulnerable and allowing us to, um, as you say, borrow your belief in us all to unleash our greatness. Thank you for who you are and the decision you made with your life to live a life that will outlive you and to leave the world in better shape than how you found it. It's a better place because you're here. You were chosen out of 400 million sperm. I am honored to be in the presence of greatness. Thank you, Amber. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the More Than Corporate Podcast. If anything that was said during this episode resonated with you or provided value in any way, it would mean the world to me if you would head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review for the More Than Corporate Podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to do that. I'm really looking forward to connecting with you. If you'd also like to connect, I've created a Facebook group that is full of amazing people who also make it their mission to live their best life every single day. If that sounds like something that you're interested in. The name of that Facebook group is Success Center. Head over there, request to join, and I look forward to connecting with you soon.